everyone, and welcome to Talking Good. I'm your host, Britt Hotelling, and today I am joined by the illustrious Jack Alato. Jack has served in a variety of positions in the nonprofit sector, including as executive director, president and CEO, development director, board member, and of course, consultant and instructor. Jack is a self-described strong believer in stewardship and cultivation, and I cannot state enough how excited I am to discuss philanthropy with him today. Welcome to the show, Jack. Well, thank you, Britt. I'm excited to be here and uh, talk with you. Yeah. So let's just dive right in. What do you do currently, and does it reflect what initially drew you into the field of philanthropy? So what I'm currently doing is more as a trainer, which uh, was not why I initially went into the, the realm of philanthropy. I really went in initially as a fundraiser. I wanted to raise money. I wanted to raise money for various causes, hospitals, social services, the arts, whatever. So, uh, but as I've grown in the profession, I realized the importance of helping young professionals like yourself become really awesome fundraisers. So training is really one of my, and I, you know, I think, I just think it's a passion right now. Nice. And so going back to that initial dalliance with fundraising, so to speak, did, do you think you had an innate calling or did you sort of just fall into it like so many people in our field? I actually did just fall into it. It wasn't something I thought I would do. I, um, you know, got right out of college and I got a job in a Baptist church. And so, uh, and we, it was in a rural part of New Jersey and our goal was to raise money. Uh, to help feed the population, mm. uh, which which was low income, disadvantaged. And so as I got into that profession, I realized that I needed to raise money to make it even better for them. Yeah. What do you make of um, religious philanthropy? And is it, because it fits under the mosaic of our field, yeah. but there's a lot of differing opinions about you know, who it helps, who it doesn't. And do you think that, do you think that it could be defined in a different way? Yeah, I think, I think that there are really two types of religious philanthropy. Philanthropy that supports the churches, synagogues, mosques, you know, so that they could thrive and survive. And then the philanthropy, which is really beautiful, in my opinion, that helps the poor disadvantaged, whether it's Catholic social services or Jewish family and community services or any type of charity, St. Vincent de Paul, Lutheran social services. There's so many out there. And um, I've worked for a couple of those. And the thing that was really interesting to me is that the, all of those organizations, none of them said you have to be a member of that church or that synagogue to get care, to get support. And so, the, so we have that philanthropy that supports the, the religious schools, the religious churches, synagogues, et cetera, and then the philanthropy that, that supports their charism of people that's more generalized across um, you know, various religious and ethnic groups, which is nice. Yeah. yeah, that's a really beautiful way of looking at it. Something that comes up for me when I think about you know, the different types of researchers that are focusing on different types of volunteering and, you know, what constitutes philanthropic activity. 
because we are such a, we're a relatively new and emerging field, so to speak. So there's still a lot of research to be done and that research is sort of still solidifying itself. An example I came across recently in a text was, you know, there's a different type, it, the, volu- the difference of volunteering for, you know, yeah. what you were just speaking of versus going to like a rally or, yeah. um, you know, the, the content of that rally. Is it advocating for or against something? Um, yeah. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, th- I think if we look at philanthropy, um, what we see early on is volunteerism caring people saying i you know i i remember reading journals from the great depression Mm. and where they would write you know we fed a family of five or and it was really interesting i mean there were just priceless journals that were written um in the 30s and i remember and it was typically volunteers would do that people of faith would volunteer at these faith-based organizations like catholic charities and that's what i'm speaking of in particular but then I think we've seen as, um, especially with the advent of the Lilly School and, uh, you know, and Hank Rosso, who was one of the founders of that school, professionalizing fundraising and saying, hey, we need to professionalize this field. We need to have people who know what they're doing. And then we see things like CFRE or ACFRE, where you and I both have CFREs where we say we want to be at the highest professional standards that we can. So that, and I just see that going forward as something that is just going to continually, continually involve. You know, one of the things that I, I do in my own reading is seeing how we're moving, not away from a donor centric model. We're still going to have donor centric fundraising, but really inclusiveness means including the beneficiaries, the clients in the, in the decision-making about how they are cared, how, you know, how we care for them, how we treat them. And I, you know, I think for too long, people who had no connection to the community were making decisions about that community. And now we're saying, let's be inclusive. Let's bring them in. And I love that. So, I mean, uh, you know, I'm certainly older than you are, Brent, but it's exciting for me to see this field evolving. And by the time, you know, you're looking at in 10 or 20 years, it's going to be much different than what we're seeing today. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought up the the issue of, you know, including beneficiaries and giving them a seat at the table, because there seems to be kind of a yeah. push pull, particularly at the, the grassroots level where, you know, professionals are, or people that have worked in our field for, you know, a while are trying to come in and, and help organizations. And sometimes there's this push-pull relationship. How would you yeah. approach the concept of philanthropy without making it seem sort of elitist inherently? Yeah, I think that they have to have a seat at the table, like you said. I think that the beneficiaries, you know, patients at low-income hospitals, patients who who are needing, so, uh, or people who need social services, or immigration services or whatever they're providing, they have to be part of the decision-making process about how that community is approached, how that community is cared for. And that's really important to me because I think, uh, you know, when I read that, it was like brain uh, opening up. Yes, of course they need to be part of that. So 
that that's the way I look at it. Yeah. So a couple of academics named Robert Payton and Michael Moody have attempted to give us a definition of philanthropy uh, in their book, Understanding Philanthropy. Um, and they define it as voluntary action for the public good. And after working in the field, yeah. would you define it similarly or do you think it's too general? Yeah, I, it's more than volunteer action for the public good. It's professionalizing it. We're not volunteers. I'm not a volunteer. You're not a volunteer. We're, we're paid professional staff. And uh, I think it's volunteer action with along with professionalism. You know, if it's just volunteers doing philanthropy, I just don't think that would be enough. It has to be a professional staff, which, which uses volunteers. I mean, volunteers mm-hmm. are such the lifeblood of what we do, you know, like in a capital campaign or any big major gift campaign, volunteers really do assist us in doing that. And so it's, it's really important. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of volunteerism, that's been uh, an interesting thing to learn about as well throughout my studies. I'm currently a, a student with the Lilly School to learn that it is very difficult to get data on volunteers because there's so many different ways we volunteer throughout our daily life, you know, informal acts of caring or helping a relative or lending someone money. And there's no way to quantify that. In your experience, you know, what have you run into the most that you think defines volunteerism? You know, I think there are a couple characteristics of volunteers, which I love. The first thing is they're not paid. So this is an act of love. You know, it's, it is truly something they do for love. The second thing I think about volunteers is that volunteers can provide important insights into the community that you and I may not have access to. They can reflect that community back to us, tell us what's on their mind, how we can help them, et cetera. The other thing that's really beautiful about volunteers is volunteers can talk about mission and vision and values of our organization in ways that really come from their heart because they're doing it as an act of love, not because they're being paid or they're getting some other kind of remuneration. Now, now let's face it, volunteers do get something, maybe social, it may be, you know, uh, camaraderie, but mainly it's because they love the mission. That's, yeah. that's what I think is really, important. so they, they reflect the community to us and they reflect our organization back to the community. The most successful fundraisers are, the, are, are volunteers, in my opinion. Why do you think that is? Because they, they're not doing it for money. And when they sit and talk with a donor, donors see them as really believing what they're saying. Whereas you and I, they may say, you know, Britt, she's great. She's talking about the vision, the values, the mission, but she's doing that because she's paid to do that. We're like the used car salesman. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. It's doing it because of love, love of mission, love of the people who, who depend on us for services. Yeah. That's a really beautiful way of putting that. And it makes me wonder, do you currently volunteer? Yes. Oh, yeah. I, uh, I am actually in the midst of doing a development assessment and a feasibility study as a volunteer for a low-income organization. Very cool. And uh, right now we're in the process of evaluating their board's training needs. 
and it's all pro bono. I mean, I'm not being but the organization has a daycare center, a health clinic, a homeless shelter, and they feed the poor. They have a pantry. They do so many different things. And that's nice. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. And when it comes to some complex problems like low income individuals in our in our country, which we're, we both reside in the USA, do, what role do you see philanthropy playing on? No. So, um, I think that I, I like to say this, you know, we've been working on poverty issues for hundreds of years and we haven't solved the issue of poverty or low income or disadvantage, social injustice. It's, it's just as bad as it ever was. And I think the reason why we haven't been able to solve these problems is because we excluded the people who benefit from those things that we're doing we need to they need to lead they need to be in leadership positions not you know it's sort of like um if you look at a tree you know we talk about diversity equity inclusion and access if you look at a tree sometimes we just have leaves on the tree uh, but people who are victims of social injustice or poverty they need to be the branches of the tree they need to be leading us, instructing us in how we can best serve their communities. I agree. I, I, it brings up this sort of idea that philanthropy throughout uh, its relatively recent history, at least, has been somewhat problematic in its own way. What would you think would be outside of what we've already discussed? If Do you think there's anything else we could do to make philanthropy more able to serve everyone equally? Yeah, I think that we have to clearly articulate to our donors the importance of caring for the poor or helping with social injustice, ending social injustice. You know, I think most of the societal ills like poverty and homelessness and all kinds of things are a result of social injustice you know, a system that has benefited mostly people like me, white middle-class men, you know, uh, and it's time to reverse that and, and make sure that they're in leadership, that they're running things and that, and, and that we're not telling them what to do, how to fix their problems. They're help telling us how they can how we could help them fix their problems. Absolutely. And that reminds me of um, The Alternative by Maurizio Miller. Have you read that? No, I don't think so. Oh, it's great. He talks about, yeah. So he talks about, you know, growing up with his mother who, you know, society might see her as being, you know, underemployed, low income, struggling, a minority. But, you know, he saw her as the superhero that was so amazing with budgeting and did such an incredible job, right, raising him. And I highly recommend it. He, I believe he was the founder of the Family Independence Initiative. And they had a group and they were focused in California. And the entire premise was just letting you know, low-income people figure it out on their own, but with the support yeah. of their community. And I believe they gave them some amount of, you know, stipend to help them, to give them yeah. to manage yeah. on their own instead of almost 
inherently implying that they're not capable of running their own households themselves by paying bills for them. Right. Yeah. No, I, I get it. I think, I think that, you know, that story helped him develop his theory of fundraising, watching his mom, either providing benefits to others or receiving benefits. That helps us develop our theory of fundraising. Each of us, you do, I do, we have a theory of fundraising based upon our early experiences, either as the recipients or as the provider of gifts. So um, I love that. I really love that part, how our, we are shaped by our early experience. I know for myself, you know, my dad was a union worker and uh, he went out on strike. And we, we received like um, gifts and benefits from faith-based organizations at, at the holiday with Christmas. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, I remember my mother, uh, you know, people would come, you know, knock on the door and they'd say, can you spare some food? And she would go through her cabinets and find a cans of food and, and give them to me, you know? So I saw her, she modeled for me philanthropy. And then yeah. those social, those faith-based organizations model philanthropy as well. So from those two things, I think that uh, it informs how we are as fundraisers. And that's really important. I mean, think back to your earliest time, Britt. I mean, either you watching your parents, you know, even if it's putting a dollar in someone outside of a grocery store's basket or or, you know, having a, you know, every family, middle-class family has had some negative things happen. So that, that happens, you know? Absolutely. And I, I have a lot of memories of, you know, little things like that, that you just mentioned. But what I always come back to, and I don't know why I'm so like stuck on this, is it, a part of philanthropy that is often forgotten about is the ability to receive. And that was so difficult for me because at, at one point in my life, I had to learn how to receive. After I yeah. moved to California, I was very yeah. poor as a 25-year-old. <laughs> and it was a whole experience in and of itself of yeah. you know thinking, this isn't charity. This is something that I would do for another person. And this is right. part of reciprocity. Right. Instead of defining it negatively. Well, I, you know, in my own life, um, you know, I worked the very first low income organization I worked for. I remember people would come and we'd be give them like a basket of food or a bag full of food. And I used to think, well, you know, I remember saying to my coworker or my supervisor or somebody, really, do they really need that food? And you know what they said to me? It, 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 you take people where they are. Mm-hmm. You got to take them where they are and not judge them as to what their need is. If they say their need is something, then it is. I think uh, Pope Francis said it really uh, smartly when he said, if the only thing that beggar on the street needs is a bottle of beer and you give it to him, that's fine. That's fine. You know, uh, I probably wouldn't do that. But I think the point of what he's making is that you take people where they are. You don't judge them. And you help them, you care for them, you, you, you love them. 
And that's a really beautiful thing, isn't it? It absolutely um, is. I, you know, I, I don't, you know, I see people, you know, with signs saying, you know, whatever, you know, I, and I don't give them a lot of money, but if it's a dollar or two, I don't care what they're going to use it for. I really don't. It's not, yeah. it's, I don't know. It may be to feed their children or their pet to buy dog food, you know? So I think that's great. And it's, it's interesting how it's a, it, it's universally known. And of course, you know, uh, religious figures like the Pope have mentioned things like that. And for some reason, when it comes to professionalism, we can't seem to make that the, the guiding principle. Yeah. yeah. So I wonder yeah. if that's a failure of education or if we're still truly an emerging profession that, that needs to. You know, we're a relatively new profession. If you say that we started with a Lilly school in the 80s, 70s and 80s, if you say that Hank Rosso really professionalized fundraising and, you know, he's at the beginning of every single book I've ever read, you know, and, you know, um, then we're relatively new, aren't we? You know, yeah. we moved from just, you know, charity people taking care of the poor to professional fundraisers raising money to hit, to take care of the poor. You know, yeah. But, uh, you know, I think it's important to take care of people. So, speaking of taking care of people, there's an old adage that has been requoted in so many different ways that I've lost count, but effectively it just says that we have to help ourselves before we help others. And something I've been personally reflecting on lately is that philanthropy starts at home, partly because it's catchy and partly because I think there's some amount of truth to it. Uh, and I'm wondering how and if that is something that rings true for you. And if so, how does it yeah. show up for you? How do you show yourself well, philanthropy? I think that helping others helps me, you know, like whether I'm a volunteer teaching people or helping people pass their CFRE. I know that when Brent gets her CFRE and raises more money for whatever she's working on, or John who works in the hospital or, or, David, who works in an environmental group, or Sally, whatever they do, all boats rise. I know that my life is immensely better when you raise more money for the cause. Even though you might be in Fort Lauderdale and I might be in California, my life is better. You know, yeah. it's, it's, just, it's just the way it is. I just love that about our profession. So I wonder, you know, what are you doing currently? And how would you say philanthropy? It sounds like it, you find philanthropy in the little things, you know, you know, working one-on-one -on -one with people and helping, you know, set off a larger change uh, down the road. Yeah. So I'm wondering if that's how you would say that philanthropy shows up in your day-to-day -day career. Yeah. What I'm doing right now is that we are preparing to uh, do a cause selling series. 10 sessions with fundraisers from Australia. So that is really awesome to me. So, uh, and through my own career with CFRE, we've had, you know, I've had people from Africa, the continent of Africa, Singapore, Hong Kong, Australia, all over the world. And that's gratifying to me. You know, I had someone from Uganda who worked for the UN 
who's trying to raise more money for the work he's doing over there. So that's exciting. That's such a dream job of mine. <laughs> yeah, so good. If anyone wants to reach out to you after listening to this podcast, how can they best get a hold of you? And who would you particularly encourage to reach out to you? Well, any fundraiser who wants to learn more can reach out to me at uh, Alotto Jack, last name, first name, A-L-O-T-T-O-J-A-C-K, one word, at Gmail, Alotto Jack at Gmail. And I answer all emails. I mean, I, I presented to, with my coworker, LaShonda Williams, we presented two workshops at AFP Icon and people reached out to me. They said, Hey, can you share with me? Um, I got a couple things. I got a, a board engagement form. Can you share with me a board engagement? Form? Can you share with me a template for a development plan? So I, you know, I've been able to accumulate a lot of stuff throughout my life in fundraising. So I really do want to share that. It's not things that I created. It's things that I got from other people. So I don't, there's, uh, I'm not hesitant. I don't feel proprietary about those things. The more we share with each other, the better it is. That's it for this episode of Talking Good. If you enjoyed it as much as we did, be sure to subscribe on your podcast platform of choice and give us a five-star rating. I'm Britt Hotailing, and I'll see you next time.